passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, if you have a Bible, uh, this morning I invite you to open up to the book of Jude. We're going to be in Jude, verses 3 and 4 this morning. Um, this is really the heart of, of Jude's letter. So this is kind of the, the purpose, the, the reason why Jude is writing uh, this, this letter to the church. Um, it's really these two verses that kind of serve as the lens through which we should uh, consider the, uh, the entirety of the book of Jude. So if you have a Bible, uh, please follow along as I read aloud verses 3 and 4. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ." So these two verses, they tell us a lot about Jude's letter. Jude is writing to this group of Christians. They're facing some troubles in the church. And he originally wants to write this joyful letter talking about the common salvation that they have. This is a beautiful term, this common salvation that they have. But he apparently becomes aware of some, some troublesome, some dangerous teaching that's being espoused in the church. And he feels like he can't not say anything about it. And that's what this letter is all about. So we ask ourselves, what exactly is this dangerous teaching that we see uh, in these churches that Jude is writing to? Well, he tells us in verse 4 that this is a perversion of the grace of our God. In other words, there's this group of people that are changing the message of the gospel. Specifically, they're changing the implications of the grace of Jesus. Apparently, there are some in the church uh, Jude is writing to that are saying that because there is grace, you can do whatever you want in this life. That grace is not transformative, but instead it's permissive. That whatever you want is yours, and that's what they say that the gospel is teaching. It's not an un unfamiliar struggle in the church. Paul addresses this when he's writing to the church in Rome, thousands of miles away, several years earlier. He says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's using this language, this argument that people were espousing in the church in Rome. It's a thread that stretches basically from the very moment that the gospel message is proclaimed all the way down to the present day. I don't know about you, but I see this in my own heart as well. After all, who among us hasn't thought, I know I really shouldn't be doing this, but God will forgive me anyway? Or who among us hasn't been tempted to use the grace of God as, as an excuse to say, well, nobody's perfect? Or, or who among us hasn't turned their backs on sin that so easily entangles and, and using grace as an excuse for only half-heartedly following Jesus? This is a, a message, it's, a, it's a, a temptation that we see not just in the early church, but also in our own hearts as well. And this is one of the reasons why the book of Jude is so important for us. It's a message to confront the temptation within the church and within us. Can you mute the guitar? I had a, my battery was running low, so that's why I had to send my guitar out. 
and now Steve's tuning it for me. So, I mean, I, I'm all for preaching with background music, but thanks, guys. Before that got any worse, um, Steve, just a, a note, Steve has a, an ear like anyone else, and so he can't not tune a guitar when it's um, out of tune, so we were, we were going to set ourselves. Okay, I should stop talking and get back to the sermon. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's go back into Jude. Um, we have this tendency to use the grace of the gospel as, as an excuse to do whatever we really want to do, and that's what Jude is addressing here in the church. I mentioned Jude uh, 3 and 4. They're the heart of Jude's letter. They really set out the structure for the entirety of this book. So verse 3 kind of gives us the what of why Jude is writing. What is Jude about to talk, uh, talk about? And he says, contend for the faith. And we'll, we'll look at that here in a moment. Verse 4 gives us the why. Why do we have to contend for the faith? And that is because we have this temptation, there is this temptation for us to change or pervert the gospel. Jude actually spends verses 5 through 16, so a good chunk of this book, giving evidence to the why. So example after example from the Old Testament, from Jewish tradition, even from the, me the message of the apostles of why this teaching is so dangerous and what will happen if you follow this teaching. And because God never says, I want you to do this with also, without also giving us guidance as to how, Jude comes back to the charge to contend for the faith at the end of this letter in verses 17 through 23. And in verses 17 through 23, he gives us the, the, the how or, or how you are to actually contend for the faith. So here's what I want us to do this morning. Verses 3 and 4, I want us to look at these two verses, first considering the what and then considering the how. So verse 3, the what, excuse me, and then verse 4, the, the why, not the how. Uh, would you pray with me as, as we jump into God's word? God, it is a, it's such a, a privilege to be able to open your word, and, and um, we rejoice that you have given us once and for all the message of salvation. We ask that as we open your word this morning, you would enable us through your spirit to contend for the true faith. We ask for forgiveness for the times and the ways that we have perverted the, the grace that we see in the gospel message, the ways that we've perverted that in our own lives and hearts. And this morning, as we consider your word, we ask that you would speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the content of, of verse 3 is simple. This is, is, this is the what of Jude's letter, and it is simply this. You have a faith worth fighting for. You have a faith worth fighting for. Consider again verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Jude had originally hoped to write this joyful letter about their shared salvation, but after he becomes aware of the struggles facing the church, he changes his approach. And he, it's not that he, he, he stops writing about their shared faith. He still talks about that, but I think originally had this, this plan to write about their faith in, in general terms, but now he's addressing this specific issue, this specific topic, and saying, I want you to contend for that faith that we share. And I don't think we can exaggerate the strength of this word contend. This word contend is an athletic one. In the first century, the Roman Empire was just about as sports crazy as our culture as well. So uh, Paul uses uh, this several times in his letters. Jude uses it here, this language of contend. And it's this, this word that means this intense physical effort and discipline that is exerted in order to attain a certain goal. 
This was the term that was used in the ancient world to describe wrestlers and runners in these competitions. This word contend is actually the root word of our word agonize that shows the strength of what Jude is referring to right here. And when I think of the word contend, I think naturally my mind goes back to last month's Olympics. And I think of all of these awe-inspiring moments with these athletes that... uh, world's top athletes, especially in some of the, the lesser-known competitions. Um, my favorite is swimming. I, I love watching uh, the swimming competitions. And uh, for about eight straight nights, if you were to peer in our windows, you would see me standing probably about three foot from the TV, watching like this with bated breath for all of these swimming competitions, especially the relay finals. I just absolutely love all of these things. You probably have been embarrassed uh, for me. Crystal, I think, was embarrassed of me. Um, in those moments. And it's easy for us to sit back as we're watching these these top athletes compete in their areas of of expertise and and be impressed. And then we begin to, maybe in the back of our mind, think, well, you know what, we we have a little bit of an idea. We can probably guess what it took for them to get to that elite level as a competitor. And then NBC, the broadcast partner of the Olympics here in the United States, will occasionally show some sort of spot, um, some, some interview uh, about one of the athletes showing what their training regimen looks like, and then you realize you have no idea what they went through. So one of those for me was uh, Katie Ledecky. Katie Ledecky is, is probably one of the uh, most decorated swimmers of all time, not just for the United States, but what makes her, her story so fascinating is not just that she's a really good swimmer, but that she's a really good swimmer at so many different distances. So she will compete in the 200, a short distance swim, and all the way up to the 1500, a long distance swim. And she doesn't just compete in them, she also, she, she blows people out of the water in the 1500, and then in the short distances, she is competing for first and actually got second to someone from Australia in a couple of those different races. What she does is absolutely unheard of. You don't see Usain Bolt from uh, the, the track and field competitions over the last couple Olympics. You don't see him competing in the 100 and the mile. And that's essentially what Ledecky is doing. And there was this moment in, um, in the Olympic coverage that they, uh, the NBC attempted to, um, to estimate how many miles that Ledecky had swam in all of her training to be at the level that she was. And I was just absolutely blown away by this. So blown away, I actually um, did a lot of digging to try to find a screenshot of this moment. Let's go ahead and throw this up, this picture. They estimated that she had swam almost 22,000 miles over the course of her training just to be at the level that she is. So almost 22,000 miles. She actually said uh, after she was done in the the Tokyo Games that she plans on swimming in Paris in 2024. So it's safe to guess that before she turns 30, she will have swam all the way around the world, or the equivalent to all the way around the world. The circumference of the earth is just under 25,000 miles. This is this insane moment of of what it means to be a, a competitor to contend for the top spot. And I think that's what Jude has in mind when he is talking about contending for the faith. I don't think we can exaggerate the strength of this calling. Jude is saying that in the face of those who are perverting the gospel, in the face of those who are are changing the gospel, every single person in the church is to exert every single effort to keep the gospel pure. This is, a, this is a call to action, a call to do whatever is necessary to remain faithful to the gospel. It's a call to discipline, 
to actually know the gospel that has been delivered to the saints so that we can preserve it, so that we can remain true to it. We have a faith worth fighting for, and we are called to contend for the gospel. Now, before I continue, I just want to say in this moment right now, as I say a faith worth fighting for, it would be incredibly easy for us to miss the heart of what Jude is saying here. When Jude is saying that we have a faith worth fighting for, he's not saying, therefore, do whatever you can to protect the faith from those who are out there, from those who are outside of the church. To use the Bible as a a sledgehammer against any skeptic, any agnostic, any atheist, any unbeliever, any person dedicated to a different religion. That's not the, the focus here from Jude. There is a place for winsome apologetics, but notice in the context of Jude, Jude is concerned about those who are calling themselves Christian and are perverting the gospel. Those who are changing the faith inside the church. And so when we say that we have a faith worth fighting for, it first and foremost means that we're talking about protecting the faith inside the church, remaining faithful and true to the gospel that has been given to us. But the faith here isn't just this list of all of these theological propositions. It's not just head knowledge. Faith when we look at the, word, the words the faith, this totality of what has been handed down to us, this is referring not just to what we believe, but also our response to the gospel. Paul, he's talking in, at the beginning of Romans, and he talks about, the, he uses this really powerful phrase. He refers to the obedience of faith. And he says this is one of the reasons why he has been called as an apostle. It says this, Through Jesus, we have received grace and authority to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. This is why Peter, as he is writing to the church in his uh, first letter, says that we go through trials and we go through hardships so that we can bear fruit and so that we can prove that our faith is genuine. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This term, the faith, is this robust term. It refers to the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. It refers to the message of salvation that is available to anyone who would come to Jesus in repentance and faith. But also, the faith refers to the message of obedience to Jesus. The the message that Jesus says in the Gospels that if anyone would follow him, they must die to themselves daily. It is this recognition that there is this war within my own heart for who is going to sit on the throne of my life. Who is going to be the absolute sovereign in my life? If we are truly going to contend for the faith, we must start by actually believing it and actually obeying it. Now notice that Jude refers to this faith as that which has once and for all been handed down to the saints. This is a a theologically rich phrase. I want to just break it apart and see what exactly the significance of what this is when Jude refers to the once and for all faith handed down to the saints. 
First, once and for all, the gospel message that we, uh, we hold forth today, that we have been entrusted with, is the exact same message that Peter preached at Pentecost 2,000 years ago. It is the exact same message that Paul preached in the Areopagus in Athens almost 2,000 years ago. This is the once and for all gospel. It has withstood the test of time, and it will continue to withstand the test of time throughout eternity. You might be saying, well, why exactly does this matter? There are a number of implications of this reality, like the fact that we don't need any further revelation. We don't need additional books of the Bible as some sects, as some uh, different religions may claim. As Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, God has already given us all things that we need for life and godliness. We don't need a second gospel. We don't need an updated gospel. We don't need Jesus to come again. We've been given, well, yeah, we do need Jesus to come again. I'm sorry. You know what I meant by that. We've been given a gospel that's going to last. And it's going to last once and for all. Second word here is, is this word delivered. One of the implications of the fact that this gospel is unchanging is made clear in this word delivered. You've been entrusted with the gospel. You are not an inventor of the gospel. This is the reality of what it means for us to have received what has been delivered. We can't change it. It's not our right. We don't have that type of authority to change the gospel that has been delivered to us. It's said that Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, uh, oftentimes, um, whether he did this literally or, or not, he, he took scissors to the book of the Bible and cut out every single part of the Bible that he didn't like. He actually created a version of the Bible called the Jefferson Bible. And it got rid of all of the, the supernatural things that the Bible talks about and only focused on the moral and ethical teaching of the Bible. You don't get to do that. We don't get to decide what we like and what we don't like and what gets to stay in the Bible and not. There are many parts of the message of the gospel that are hard to swallow. Many people respond to the message of the Bible by subtracting from it, subtracting from the message of the gospel, removing the parts that we find to be offensive, the parts that we find to be unattractive, irrelevant. And if we're being honest, this actually has its roots all the way back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when the, the serpent comes up to Eve and the first thing that the serpent says is, did God really say? He's casting doubt upon what God has actually said. He subtracts from what God has actually said. Later, he says, God did not say. He, he openly rejects the message of the gospel by subtracting it. And people will do this today as well. Subtract from the gospel message. And many people will actually do it with, with really good intentions. With really good intentions. They, they, they want others to believe. They want others to belong. So they try to remove the parts that are going to be offensive, that are going to be exclusive. But in doing so, they, they, they change the gospel. They pervert the gospel. There's another way that people can change the gospel, and that is going the other way. Not just... Perverting the gospel through subtraction, but perverting the gospel through addition by adding to the gospel. 
Many well-intentioned people are guilty of this. Church history is filled with people who are concerned about the lack of purity in the church, and they take it upon themselves to add rule after rule after rule to legislate holiness in God's church. That one person's personal convictions on what it actually means to obey the Sabbath suddenly become the rule for everyone. We're adding to the gospel. Both subtracting from the gospel, adding to the gospel, miss the point. The faith has been delivered to us. The word delivered, this common word in the New Testament, used to remind us that we don't get to invent it. We don't get to change the story of salvation. We've been entrusted with it, and as those who have been entrusted with it, we must remain faithful to it. Finally, Jude uses this word, to refer to those that the message has been delivered to. He says it's been delivered once for all to all the saints. This word saints is a powerful one. Sometimes we use it today to refer to a special category of Christians. That's not the way the Bible uses it. The word saint in the Bible just simply refers to someone who has placed their faith in Jesus, someone who is found in Jesus, someone who's being made holy by Jesus. The word saint literally just means holy ones, God's holy ones. And if you're in Christ Jesus, then you are a saint in Jesus' eyes, that you are being made holy. One pastor in the late 1800s, Alfred Plummer, gave us insight into the weight of this term. He reminds us that being called a saint is, quote, at once an honor, an exhortation, and a reproach. It tells you of your high calling, it exhorts you to live up to it, and it reminds you of your grievous shortcomings. To be called a saint reminds us of our incredible calling, that we are God's holy ones. It encourages us to live up to that calling, that we would actually live holy lives as God's holy ones, and it makes us very aware of the gap between my life and what God calls me to be, and to run to his grace, run to his mercy. Notice what Jude says here. He says that the gospel message has been entrusted to all the saints, He's not referring to this special category of Christian who have this really impressive spiritual resume. He's not referring to to pastors and and missionaries and those who do full-time ministry work. He's saying all of God's people have been given the message of the gospel, that have been entrusted with the message of the gospel. And so we, all of us, if we are found in Jesus, have a faith worth fighting for and must do all we can to contend for the gospel. Now, this calling is is essential because, as Jude makes clear in verse 4, there are dangers facing the church. And those dangers are primarily not from those outside the church, but actually those who are inside the church, claiming to be followers of Jesus. Recall Jude's words in verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Notice that Jude in this verse gives four descriptions of those who are a danger to the church. The first one is this confusing statement. He says, those who were long ago designated for this condemnation. What does Jude mean when he says that? We're actually going to look at this um, in great detail over the next few weeks. But what I want us to just say right now is, is look at verses 5 through 17. 
So when Jude says, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, right after that he gives different examples from the Old Testament, different examples from Jewish tradition, even from the mouths of the apostles, of what will happen if you do not repent. What will happen if you have changed the gospel, you will be facing judgment. And so that's exactly what he's saying. He's, he's not referring to some sort of specific prophecy in mind in the Old Testament. This is just a general statement. This is how God works when we change the message of the gospel. So that's the first one. Notice he also says that these are ungodly people. Remember, these are, these are people who are inside the church. These are people who know the songs, those who carry their Bibles around. On the surface level question, uh, conversations that you might have with them, they, they may talk the talk, and yet Jude says they're ungodly because they have changed the message of the gospel. And oftentimes they do that through their actions. How is that? Well, the answer lies in the next two descriptions. Jude refers to these people not only as those who are designated for condemnation, not only as those who are ungodly, but also as those who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. In other words, these are people who take advantage of God's grace. They take the call of the gospel to live a life of obedience to Jesus, and they remove all the ethical commands of following him. They weren't primarily preaching a heresy saying, follow a different Lord. They're saying, if you are a Christian, you don't have to follow the Lord. You don't have to live a life of obedience to Jesus. They take the freedom of the gospel and they, they change it into this license to do whatever their hearts desired. It could have been sex or greed or drunkenness, whatever. In other words, they presume upon the grace of God in the gospel. They do whatever they want because they believe that God is going to save them in the end. After all, isn't that the very definition of grace, that it's a, a free gift? It's not based on anything that I do or anything that I could earn. You see how Jude is concerned, not with those outside the church, but those who are inside the church, the sickness that is found within each and every one of us. This presumption upon the grace of God is a huge temptation for us as followers of Jesus. Who among us hasn't been tempted to ignore the commands of the Bible because God's going to forgive me anyway? One author puts it this way, It is too easy and convenient to assume that when Jude speaks to a certain people, he speaks to others and not to us. But this verse reveals our underbelly. The truth is, this verse unmasks our propensity. Who among us, if not, left, if not left alone by the Holy Spirit for a single second, might not risk all heaven holds for a moment of earthly satisfaction? This verse belongs to the church. See, I read that verse. Jude, verse 4. And it's like a mirror. That's like a mirror to me, the countless times that I've heard the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit saying, is this the best use of your time right now? Why don't you spend some time with me? And I ignore it. The innumerable moments that God has presented me with an opportunity to speak with non-Christian friends, non-Christian neighbors, and just swallowed my words. The times where I've told myself, I'll do that later, whether it's Bible reading or prayer or memorization or, or meditation on Scripture. And then before I know it, the day is over. I haven't done anything. 
This verse is a warning for all who are in the church who presume upon the grace of God. This is what it means to contend for the faith, to start with ourselves. This picture of taking advantage of God's grace is, is carried over in the final description of verse 4. He says that these are people who deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the emphasis here on the authority of Jesus in this phrase. The Jude refers to Jesus as Master and Lord, Sovereign. Jesus is the King. He's the Lord over all creation. Remember how Jude refers to himself when he's introducing himself in the beginning of, of this book? He refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign. He is master. He's king. And in turn, we are his servants. But these people either explicitly reject Jesus' authority or they implicitly reject it through their perversion of the grace of the gospel by doing whatever they want. And this, this makes a, a fair bit of sense to us if you think about it, if you aren't actually following Jesus by, by doing whatever you want, by presuming upon the grace of the gospel, living however you want to live, then you're also rejecting his authority. You're refusing to be obedient to the king. And if the, one of the greatest temptations facing us as Christians is to take advantage of God's grace, and this is right up there. To refuse to bend the knee to Jesus in every area of our lives. To hold tight in certain areas of our lives, unwilling to turn them over to Jesus to say, yes, Jesus, you are Lord over this area of my life too. We have a tendency to say, you know what, Jesus, you can have all of this, but I'm going to hold on to this one area, whether it's my finances or my downtime or how I treat my spouse or my children or my coworkers or my friends. Jesus, you can be Lord over all of this, but this one area you cannot have. And this is a daily battle within each and every one of us. Who's going to be the Lord of my life today? Who's going to sit on the throne of my heart today? Who's going to have the final say in how I spend my downtime, in the words that I say, in the priorities that I set? Is it Jesus, the Master and Lord, or is it me, the master of my own soul, a mini lord of my own life? There's this book called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson, and he describes how inseparable this presuming upon the grace of God, taking advantage of God's grace, and rejecting his authority, how they are completely inseparable. He says this, taking advantage of God's grace may be couched in doctrinal and theological terms, but... At its core, it both betrays and masks a heart that finds distaste for the absolute divine obligation or duty and authority of Jesus. The great error facing the church in Jude's day and our day isn't one that is just theological. It is certainly that. It is also rooted in this willing rebellion against the lordship of Jesus over your life. At its core, there's no room for the Lord Jesus Christ because we want to remain Lord of our own lives. And no wonder Jude says, I want you to contend for the faith. No wonder Jude calls on us, each and every one of us, to contend for the faith. That's the core of the message of these two verses. It's the message that I hope sinks deep within each and every one of us this morning. Contend for the faith that has been entrusted to you. 
that each and every one of us could contend for the faith that has been entrusted to us, that we would wage war against the parts of our soul that reject the authority of the Lord Jesus, that we wouldn't be passive, that we would exert every effort to submit our lives to the lordship of Jesus, our master and our Lord Jesus. This is a faith worth fighting for, a faith that must be first fought for in our own hearts and lives. And then in the church, contend for the faith that has been entrusted to you. Be on guard against the temptation to add to, to take away from the gospel, even with the greatest of intentions that you may have. You have been entrusted with the call of the gospel. You haven't been entrusted with inventing the gospel. God has revealed himself to us in his word. There's a psalm, Psalm 147, um, that talks about the marvel that God reveals himself to us. And in the context, it's this wonder that God has spoken to the people of Israel, and yet as, as the new covenant people of God, the marvel that God has spoken to us, that God has revealed to us, that God has delivered this message of salvation to us. Psalm 147 says this, He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. It is absolutely astounding that God has chosen to deliver to us once for all this faith, this message of salvation, this gift of grace contend for the gospel. You have a faith that is worth fighting for. And that fight starts within your own heart. To fight against your temptation, your struggle to remain Lord of your own life. And to encourage those who are around you in the faith to live toward this gospel end. Contend for the faith that has been entrusted to you. Let's pray. Father, we, we rejoice that you have seen fit to reveal to us your word. That you have delivered the message of the gospel to us. What a gift. Thank you, Jesus. We ask now that you would help us to strive with every effort to contend for the faith of the gospel. We ask for forgiveness for the times in our own lives where we take advantage of your grace, where we reject your lordship of our lives. Help us to be increasingly servants of the Lord Jesus, just as Jude was. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.